Many of you are very new to the practice and certainly new to intensive practice, life on a retreat. We've had a fair number of interviews now and it seems like a lot of you characterize your life prior to coming here as stressful, hard work, too rapid, too busy, and so forth. And you thought you were coming here to kind of relax and develop some peace and get rid of your stress. Instead, we give you a a new kind of suffering, one you never imagined before. All kinds of situations that you couldn't have dreamed up. But I think, uh, hopefully, but also we're giving you ways to work with these kinds of suffering that come up in the course of living like this uh, that will that can be transferred to when you go home. Many of the uh, comments, one way or another, had to do with uh, everyone being impressed with how scattered their minds were and discouragement with that, amazement and discouragement. The Tibetans have a a way of looking at the same shamatha practice where they actually consider this, uh, when you begin to see how wild your mind is, they call it attaining the cascading mind. Which means you begin to see just exactly how things have always been. We didn't implant it in you when you got to IMS. You're starting to take a look. And why would this be an accomplishment? Why would they see this as an achievement of some sort? Uh, because you're seeing the way things are, and here you, you face a fork in the road. You could get tremendously discouraged. Everyone gets a little bit discouraged. It can be quite humbling. Uh, maybe you have some high position outside of here with a lot of responsibility and authority, and then you come here and you see what's going on inside your mind. Well, you're doing is looking in the mirror. It's an inner mirror. So one fork of the road could be that. And of course, uh, a retreat like this is designed to help you see your predicament, but not get lost in it and to take another fork in the road, which is to understand that help is on the way. It's here, in fact. It's the practice itself. Uh, An image that has helped a few people, it helped me, I saw it some years ago, Watch the friend's child who's just learning how to walk. And this little boy, uh, very happy expression on his face, got up, tried to walk, fell down. Got up, tried to walk, fell down. So many times I can't. But what was interesting was that there was no look of discouragement on his face. He was still happy. No comparing mind, like other children learned it before me. You know. (laughs) Uh, in fact, no comparison at all. It was just, you fall down, you get up. And it was sort of enjoying the process of uh, getting back up and trying again and falling. And I was watching with amazement. Wow, if only we could practice like that. Uh, because the instructions are, are really saying that. You know, if your mind wanders, just come back. Period. Full stop. So uh, maybe we can learn from that little child and all the children who at first, don't, um, they want to learn. And there's a certain joy in learning. uh, And it hasn't gotten infected with achievement, advancement, power, fame, prestige, 
and all the rest of it. That you know, it's too late for us, I suppose, but we can try and undo some of it. Um, when I last uh, ended off, I was talking about yogi jobs, among other things, and uh, intimacy of practice, uh, and uh, applying that here so that all the situations that make up the round of life at IMS uh, are seen as equally, uh, as equally valuable. Not just your yogi job, but dressing, undressing, washing, everything. Um, there's a, a metaphor that comes from the breath itself that might help you. It's a guideline to living, really, uh, here at IMS and beyond. Uh, when, just as uh, when you're breathing, uh, if you can fully exhale, I don't mean take a, an intentional deep breath, it's just quite naturally, if you fully exhale, then you can fully inhale. So that is, if you can empty yourself of the stale, old air, which at one point was life-giving, but now it's waste, and it needs to be breathed out, uh, then you make room for what is fresh, fresh uh, energy that you need. And then when that's done, you breathe that out. And the metaphor would hold for our situation. As you move from the meditation hall, exhale the meditation hall. It's over. So that you can inhale walking. When walking, when you, when walking is over, exhale walking. So that you can inhale a cup of tea. When a cup of tea is over, exhale it. So that you can do whatever is next and so forth. Um, if you keep that model, just keep it simple, stick to the present moment, do each thing in its, in its turn, um, I think you'll find it easier here. Uh, and I realized I have a yogi job too, uh, and I'm doing it right now. Uh, let me tell you one aspect of the job so you understand. I'm trying to convey what I mean by intimacy of practice. I hope you see it as a useful way to look at things. I've been teaching for about 20 years. Do you know how many times I've given the breath awareness instructions? I can't count that high. I have given those instructions many, many times. Allow the breath to flow naturally. Breathe in, breathe out. You've heard it, right? Okay. Um, for the most part, it's not boring. And it's not flat. Every now and then, I hear it, and it's like a, a tape. It's dead. And that means I'm not there. I'm not fully there. I mean, I've given the instructions many, many times, so the information has, is deeply engraved in my consciousness. But every time I do it, if I don't do it in a fresh way, really hearing what I'm saying, really allowing even a new way to say it if it turns up, if I don't do that, it comes out kind of uh, metallic. And I can hear it. And it's an alarm. It sort of points to the fact that I'm not fully in the moment. That uh, the instructions will come out, they're correct, but they're not right. So it's the same with everything that we're doing. Now, we encourage you to enter into whatever you're doing wholeheartedly, each situation. Uh, in fact, when you learn how to unite with a situation, uh, even if it's not at the deepest level or if it's only temporary at first, you can leave the self behind. That is, you 
in the process of uniting with the activity, uh, you forget the self. The self is not there, and there's just work happening, functioning, happening. And that can be very joyful, sometimes called doerless doing. In other words, there isn't so much self-consciousness, calculation, scheming, and so forth. We left off, I left off, um, with, if you recall, it, uh, our minds have this tendency to, to uh, be programmed to, be, to calculate in order to, in order to mind. That is, we're always doing one thing to get something else. And when we see the present moment, as a means to an end, uh, then that present moment is deprived of its immense significance that it could have. In the process of using it as a means to an end, uh, the present moment loses the kind of significance that it could have. Uh, spiritual practice has everything to do with quality, not quantity. Well, of course, quantity enters in, but uh, when we talk about notions like intimacy of practice and related notions, it has everything to do with the quality of life. And that's why sometimes people will say, oh, what does it matter? I'm just one little person, and there are just so, so many people on the planet, uh, or even that many meditators. What's the big deal? I'm just a little ant. Uh, if you look at yourself quantitatively, that may seem that's so. But spiritual life really has everything to do with a qualitative approach. So this one being, meaning you, meaning me, that's the whole universe. And that's what we're focusing on, is the quality of that experience. It really matters. Okay. Um, There are some teachers who use, I think, as one teacher in particular use, has used, uh, I think, rather helpful and amusing way of uh, helping us to unlearn this in order to mind, where even when we sit to be with the breath, if we see the breath as a means to get calm, then we've deprived that breath of its possible significance, of its fullness, and I don't want to put that into words, of just what it is, because we're using it for something else. And Sawaki Roshi, uh, I didn't uh, practice with him personally, but when I was in Japan, I practiced with uh, people in that lineage. And uh, he had an interesting way of trying to help people not do that. Uh, one of his main disciples, Uchiyama Roshi, who was a very, very shy, and at the time when he was a young monk, lacking in confidence, uh, hesitant kind of person. And Sawaki Roshi was very powerful, very charismatic, tremendously confident. And Uchiyama Roshi once said to him, they were walking along, he's reported this, uh, when he was a very young monk, he said to Sawaki Roshi, uh, you're so confident and decisive and, and powerful. If I keep meditating like this for many years, will I be like you? And he said, no, I was just born this way. So that, there goes that fantasy, if you had it when you came here. <laughs> he, 
he wanted to have on his epitaph that he wasted his entire life on the cushion. But he's, he called sitting meditation completely useless. He said, but if you don't do this useless thing wholeheartedly, your life will be useless. Figure that one out. Anyway, do you see what he's getting at? Now, a few of the questions this morning uh, seem to imply fatalism or passivity in, in this emphasis on what is this moment, how is it for you right now, uh, this um, willingness uh, to nakedly face the moment, to do that. Uh, a number of the questions, either were, one was directly that way and some implied it. So I, I think it, uh, I ought to try and I would like to try and dispel that. It has nothing to do with fatalism or passivity. When I use the term passive for observation, I think it, that can easily convey that. Let me give you a silly example. Let's say you've all heard this instructions of being in the moment, not using this moment for another moment, and we're all doing that right in here perfectly. And suddenly the building catches fire. Okay. Uh, what would correct practice be with that? Uh, sitting here and in this moment I feel uh, suffocating by smoke. Uh, it's getting a bit hot and I, I don't, it's a negative emotion. I don't like it. No, because you're highly tuned to this moment, you'd be the first one up to alert us all and lead us out of here as fast as you could. It's, in other words, it's, uh, perhaps of course we're talking about it so often in the context of sitting. But if you're in the moment in your life, then you're more attuned to what is actually happening. You're more sensitive to the reality that's going on, to the fact of that moment. And so whatever your course of action would be, it is much more likely to be adequate, intelligent, appropriate. Do, do you see uh, what I'm getting at? It's, it's not that you just sit there and... Um, some years ago, this is, I just remember this, I haven't thought of this in a long, long time, before we had a center, this was many years ago, um, I used to teach in a church in Cambridge, and there was a, it was a very large church, and then there was a platform where everyone would come in and pile up their stuff, their uh, uh, knapsacks and briefcases and uh, all kinds of things, and, uh, and uh, apparently their wallets as well. And I would give instructions very much like what I was doing now. And one time we're all sitting there with our eyes closed and I'm giving these instructions about allowing and permitting and all that stuff. And someone came in and just stole a whole bunch of things, just ran out with it while we were doing that. Uh, one of the people in the group was a cartoonist for the New Yorker magazine. And a few months later a cartoon appeared. The teacher looked strikingly like me. <laughs> And the rap is going like, just surrender to the moment, allow whatever is happening to happen. And there are people climbing in through the windows, stealing things and carrying out the furniture. Uh, and we're just sitting there uh, being, being in the moment. Maybe this cartoon of the instruction will help you understand that that's not what we have in mind at all. Uh, the Buddha is hardly a fatalistic person. He uh, set in motion uh, a, course, a course of action that's still alive today, thousands of years later. So 
don't be don't be misled or don't misunderstand it. Um, let's uh, go into this notion of intimacy and some of its practical expressions a little bit more. Remember, uh, as we're using it, as I'm using this term, um, what it suggests is no separation from what you're doing. That is, um, a willingness to nakedly receive what's happening. That is, uh, by naked, the clothes that you're taking off are conceptual clothes. You're not covering things up with ideas and notions, and as a result, receiving something that isn't quite the fact of what it is, because it's uh, affected by how you're thinking about it. And that thoughts in many different ways, and I hope I can give you some useful examples this evening, uh, are between you and your experience, so the experience is not intimate. There's separation. Um, Many years ago, a lot of my examples come from teaching. I hope they help you because they're people just like us who learned, applied the practice, and learned these things. This was a while back, and at that time, instead of things Oriental being in, things French were in. And it was uh, in fashion to go spend the, your junior year abroad if you went to college in, at, at, in Paris, and to, uh, people never heard of croissants, or, didn't, or if you knew how to pronounce it, you were considered sophisticated. And I think there was just one French patisserie in all of Cambridge, and all of us would go there with our berets and our uh, <laughs> New York Times and drink French coffee and, and have French cheese and croissants. Okay. Uh, one day, this uh, woman came to, uh, into this practice group that we had, and she was just, uh, uh, she couldn't stop laughing. She said that uh, for 10 years, she's been eating a cheese that she really didn't like. But she did the practice of you know, eating slowly and carefully and tasting the cheese. And when she did that, she saw, I don't really like this cheese, but I've been eating it for 10 years. So she'd been eating a concept for 10 years. It was satisfying in some other way, not the taste of the cheese, but just the notion that it was French <laughs> was very, very helpful. And she saw through that. It fell away. Uh, I had an experience which is a little bit different, kind of the reverse of that. Uh, there were three of us, when we arrived in Korea, uh, we didn't speak the language. Uh, it was a culture that, this was more than 20 years ago, um, was very, very different than what we had known. And especially the food was very different. And we were having a hard time with it. And then uh, we started in making jokes, and I think I was probably the ringleader. Uh, you know, even a, uh, a McDonald's hamburger would be great right now. Just, even a, just a bowl of cornflakes, anything American, because there was no concept of breakfast. It was just sort of pickled cabbage and tofu uh, three times a day, you know, morning, noon, and night, just on and on. Uh, different styles of cabbage, different kinds of soy products, you know but not a, a good old American breakfast and no American food. And I was joking and joking, and we weren't liking it. And so the jokes were covering up a real uh, unhappiness with what we were eating. And finally, uh, my teacher, not physically, but I don't know how he did, he backed me against the wall and screamed at me really loud, where are you? I said, Korea. And he said, exactly. 
and then he walked away on me. <laughs> okay. So I was living in America. My body was in Korea. I wasn't really tasting the food. It's just that it was compared to what I was used to, it, uh, it, didn't, it wasn't what I wanted. And so I was also in my mind tremendously. Once he shot that lightning bolt at me and I uh, caught up with the present and realized I'm in Korea and I started to taste the food, not bad. In fact, to this day, I, I actually love Korean food. It's one of my favorite kinds of food. But at first, it was a nightmare. And so much of that was in the mind. Intimacy would be the innocence. It's where the mind, beginner's mind, if you like, where you give it a try. Here's a food you've never had. You chew on it, you taste it, and see what it is. But, it's, but often what happens is the mind gets there first, before it gets to your taste buds. And it tells you what it is. And then, like fools, we believe it. And either we eat it, even if we don't like it, or we don't eat it, eat it even if it tastes pretty good. So that's, a, those, that's another example. Let me move, get a little bit more up the ante a bit. Uh, my father developed Alzheimer's disease for the last three or four years of his life. He was in a home with uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, before that, he was a, a, a very alert, uh, aware, uh, of course, I think that is my daddy, very intelligent, and uh, he was a wonderful person. I mean, he was, for me anyway. Uh, and suddenly, he started, his mind started to disintegrate, and it got so bad that we had to put him in a, a nursing home, and of course, that was a, a very, very sad event. And uh, which is my style, is I started reading everything about Alzheimer's disease and spoke to my doctor friends to tell me about that, to tell me about that. Before long, I was a, a veritable encyclopedia of medical information about Alzheimer's disease. And then, when I, at first, when I visited him, uh, it took me a while to realize this. I didn't know this at first, that this concept, this diagnostic category, came between my father and myself. I thought I was visiting him, but I had this Alzheimer's disease between us. And it was affecting us because it affected me, and then, of course, that had to affect him. We were very close. And it took me a while to realize that this disease category, as useful as it is, needed to be thrown away. Uh, once I threw it away, and just was right there with my father, the quality of our interactions changed dramatically. Uh, I still didn't know what he was talking about half the time. He would say things and start laughing, and I, at, when he would do that, when I had the category, I would just be sitting there not knowing why he's laughing, and I couldn't join him. When I threw the category away, I still didn't know what he was talking about. But when he started to laugh, I did. So what if I didn't get it? Does that mean I can't laugh? Why not? Who said that? Where's the law that you're not allowed to laugh unless you get it? <laughs> <laughs> and just in general, I realized there was a, a filter between us that I didn't even know was there. Uh, and that diagnostic category uh, in some way was somewhat dehumanizing. It's not the fault of the category. It's how I was using it. Uh, another thing occurred there. 
um, he started to, uh, before we would leave, every, after every visit, he would get very anxious and say, uh, could you give me $10 uh, uh, for me to keep in my, uh, keep with me? Uh, he'd say, you know, uh, a guy can't, you know, a guy, you reach into the back of your pocket and all you feel is your rear end. He says, a guy's got to have some money there. Can you give me $10? And then my mother and sister and I, would look at each other, and then the nurse once came in and said, don't do it, don't do it. He, uh, it'll get lost, and it'll get washed into the laundry. It'll wind up in the toilet. It's a complete waste of your money. And like a fool, I listened to them. So week after week, the poor guy was pleading, just give me $10. Finally, I threw that away. I know I saw it, just a piece of paper. You know? I gave him the $10 over the objections of my, my sister, my mother, and the nurse was really thought I was some kind of idiot. And then she said, don't, and, and so I gave it to him. And the difference it made was incredible. It made him so happy. And then we came back at the next visit. Uh, he was really much happier that he had this money in his pocket, and he did lose it. You know. And then the, the nurse again chided me. I said, look, um, we give him this piece of paper, and it makes him happy. Is it less effective than the, than the meds you're giving him, which don't seem to work at all? You know, uh, it's, it's cheap. To get, it's just $10, $10 to get for him to be that happy. So we get attached to the concept. And a result, as a result, we're not intimate with the actuality of the situation. And a certain kind of fresh wisdom can come in if we're free of the past and all of our assumptions that we don't even know we have about what money is and what you're supposed to do with it and so forth. Uh, can you see how the applications are endless? That it, it's, a, it's a new life. It's a way of uh, being reborn. It's the same reality. Uh, but there, there's the possibility of a certain freshness that we can bring to even the smallest events. Um, many of us come to meditation practice wanting to correct some insufficiency, uh, something that's off in us, and we want to correct that, and we feel if we practice hard, then... Uh, will be okay. And here are a couple of them that come up pretty often. I remember this one is uh, a while back, but different versions of it come up. This person uh, had a lot of aggression, and his hero was Gandhi. Gandhi was one of my heroes, too. And we started to talk, and what I saw was that he didn't really want to use the practice as it's designed. He just wanted to do an impersonation of Gandhi. Now, that's what happened in India. There weren't that many people who had the same level of development as Gandhi. The power of his real deep inner development pulled them all along. But as soon as he was assassinated, there was a bloodbath. And some of the very people who strongly upheld the Gandhian approach to reality, it just went away when he was no longer there to, to kind of pull them along with him because they hadn't done the inner work. Okay. Now, the approach of practice, you can do, you can cultivate certain qualities, metta, etc., to help you be a better person, to, to some degree an antidote to aggression that you have. But finally, uh, the point of practice is not to uh, do an impersonation of Gandhi, but to relate to the fact of how you are, which is you're aggressive. You want to be nonviolent, but you have violence in you. And so the practice is, is asking, can we learn how to be intimate with ourselves as we are in general 
And if that's the way you are, then that's what's being asked of us. That is, if you want to be nonviolent, you can't jump over the fact of your violence uh, because it would still be there. What, you, what the, the message of the practice is, is to learn how to approach that violence in you, that, that kind of energy, those tendencies, uh, with gentleness, with objectivity in a non-judgmental way, all, all, the, all of the teachings that we've been uh, referring to that all of you are familiar with. And it's out of fully becoming intimate with your aggression that that intimacy starts, that aggression starts to fall away. It starts to lose its power. And uh, out of that can come, uh, let's say, a less violent person, and for all I know, someone who really has gone beyond it all. Same with confusion. Uh, sometimes people re report feeling very confused and how can the practice help them? Uh, I would say the way it can help us is to not be confused by confusion. Uh, to, to be one with confusion. To understand that confusion is, is a mind state. Just like doubt, it's one of these visitors that comes. And if you can restrain yourself or work with the anxiety that comes. When we're adults, we're not allowed to be confused. It's all right for children to be confused. <clears throat> I don't know, maybe it's, as we say, a guy's thing. I know I was brought up, at a certain age, it's time to not be confused anymore. You really should know exactly what you want to do, where you want to go, who you want to marry, whatever, everything. And if you don't, you do, you do your best to uh, present yourself as someone who really knows what's going on. I know times have changed. We're, we're more real now. Uh, I first learned this, uh, I was a college professor at the time, but doing these kinds of practice. And in the senior year at this particular university, year after year there would be the same problem. Uh, seniors didn't know what they really wanted to do. And then their parents would get on them and uh, either threaten them or say they were going to withhold the car that they were going to give them or the trip to Europe. Just make up your mind and do something, for goodness sakes. And they would come in for office hours, as they call at the university. I don't know if they still call it that. And I would listen, and I was doing my best in a very small way to convey these teachings, that uh, not so much to try to grasp after what, they're what, they, what they should do, uh, like a drowning person grasping after straws, but uh, stop, slow down, and take a look at the fact that they don't know what they want to do, and look at that. What I found was, I would say, most people couldn't do it. At a certain point, the anxiety level was too great, and suddenly everyone was a social worker, a teacher, or a lawyer. Oh, where did all this clarity come from? Oh, I just finally, I knew what I wanted to do. Oh, yeah, wow. Great. I'm glad. Where did it come from? You know, a lightning bolt? Uh, at a certain point, and some of those decisions, of course, don't hold up. They're not wise. I've done it myself. I did that once myself. A few people, not many, a few people had the strength, I would say the strength, to acknowledge they really didn't know what they wanted to do. They were confused. And they decided to not, uh, no matter what their parents said, to take time off, to wander through Europe, to do whatever it is they wanted to do. And I felt a lot of respect for them. I don't know what happened. I hope they did find their way, you know, <laughs> somewhere. Let's hope it's a happy ending. But... Uh, 
the, the principle of practice is really, you know, in many ways, training in honesty. It's hard to live that way, but I think it's harder to live in dishonesty. In the short run, it may seem like dishonesty is easier, but the price we pay is enormous. There's no free lunch in the universe. You can't escape anything. Have you noticed that yet? You want to call it karma? Maybe then you'll believe it. But that's what it is. So that's our training, is, is uh, to begin to see the way it is. How is it? How is this breath just exactly the way it is? Some people, are, well, I don't like the way my breath is. It's too rough. It's too shallow. It's just, great. Can you be with that breath as, as it is? Because if you can, if you can learn how to do that, maybe you can learn with more highly charged aspects of your experience that are also uh, not going to be so pleasant or that are not what you would have ordered. Those, um, some of you are, uh, some of the questions had to do with search, exploration, uh, that kind of a journey, walking this path of, of exploration. And that's good. That's what this path is. But where you're walking is in, into yourself. The path is just a metaphor. The steps that you take are, are into yourself. You are the path. You're sitting on it right now. In fact, you, you, right now, you are the path. The path is just a metaphor. And so all that we're doing here is we're slowly, we're learning how to equip the mind to have some stability, some calm, some steadiness, uh, so that uh, when we uh, direct it towards some of the more difficult states in life, uh, we'll have a good chance of being able to practice uh, fruitfully with those states. Uh, here's a, a common one, I think. Uh, in speaking in terms of intimacy, when you use that phrase, most people assume it means relationship. Uh, and many of us would like to have an intimate relationship. Either the relationship we're in, we would like to improve it so that it is more intimate, or we'd like to meet some with whom we could have an intimate relationship, or some of the more advanced ones have already seen what that is, and now they're just meditating, forgetting. <laughs> Excuse, just kidding. Just kidding. How do you do that? How do you become intimate with another person if you're not intimate with yourself? And if the other person isn't intimate with, them, with themselves? How are two people who are not intimate with themselves both come together yearning to be intimate? Uh, there's so many uh, dark areas and hidden places and uh, self-deception. Now, that's not a crime. Uh, we humans are like that. And the joy of the practice is being willing to look at that and to unfold. That's what uh, obstacles, there's no spiritual life without obstacles. Shantideva said the main obstacle to spiritual unfoldment is no obstacles, to have no obstacles. It's a great Indian yogi. Obstacles are the material that we use to grow. Foolishness is what we turn into wisdom. If, there were no, if we weren't foolish, how would we ever become wise? We need foolishness. It's wonderful. Those are the materials that help us wise up if we're willing to learn from our own foolishness. So don't resent any of that. In this sense, there are no obstacles. Some of, especially some of you who knew, were presenting many things as an obstacle. And then when you heard, we're going to open the path up, oh, well, basically what was being said, if only I weren't this, if this weren't part of my experience, I could really practice meditation. 
no, uh, uh, that, if only, that is your practice. But uh, it's a re-education, and it's a radical re-education, to learn to look at what we've been avoiding and running away from. Let me leave you with one idea, which I, is very strong in me. I've seen this uh, many, many times. I've learned it through my own pain and joy. And uh, I'll leave you with this as an idea. It certainly influences me, not only in my own practice, but, I, I, but in teaching as well. Uh, what I saw some time ago is how much energy I was using to avoid uh, things that I didn't like in myself. Uh, and avoidance can come quite camouflaged. It, some of it's obvious, you know, denial, repression. Uh, it gets more subtle. Postponement, ambivalent, coping. Many people think that's good. Oh, yeah, I was able to cope with it. It's exhausting to cope with something. What, you're holding it at bay? Or you're holding yourself at bay? Um, explaining it. In Cambridge, everyone is brilliant and highly educated, and they merely understand everything. So then how come they, uh, they don't feel so hot? Because it's all in the head, but it can be very, very satisfying. Something's happening to you, and you come up with a, a wonderful explanation. Either Freud, Jung, or yourself came up with it. <laughs> And the explanation is so satisfying, or the Buddha, that you feel you've actually gotten somewhere. You have not yet. You're not in the ballpark yet. That's good, the explanation. But the explanation is you're not touching the fact yet. In fact, that explanation is keeping you from having intimate contact with whatever that fact is. So what I'm trying to say is, some years ago, I saw how much energy I wasted in all these tactics and strategies. Uh, so much energy dispersed and wasted. And fortunately, I had a, a good teacher who really helped me with this one. I don't think I could have done it on my own. I, I know I couldn't have done it on my own. I'm very, very grateful to this person. Um, just for the moment, just play with that idea. All that energy, if it applies to you, maybe you're not doing that. Maybe it's just my situation. But if it applies to you, think of all of that energy that is squandered, dispersed, in uh, indirection, postponement, hesitation, avoidance, neg uh, denial, etc. Picture if instead of using our energy to keep from moving in close and to really investigating and to see ourselves up close, look in the mirror. Picture if all that energy were aggregated were brought together. Can you see how powerful the mind would be that it, it could look at that which we're running away from? That all these little escapes, that, it, that energy, can, it, it adds up. If, if there was a summation of that energy, it would be a different mind. And so, whenever possible, I personally like to talk to people's strength. In that sense, I'm an awareness fundamentalist. Uh, I use techniques and all that, but finally I have the most faith in the direct seeing of the way things are. <laughs>